So we're uh, in a study of Romans chapter 1, and I've encouraged you to um, have the notes or whatever, it, however you do that, because I'm following, particularly here in the, these first three or four chapters, really following a pretty tight outline. But um, a quick review. The thesis of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God is available to us by faith. And when we put our faith in his son, he declares us righteous. That's Romans 17, 18, and so on. But Paul must prove something. Paul must prove why does humanity need God's righteousness. And so what he is doing, we just are getting started with that. He has to, he has to demonstrate something. That humanity has rejected every revelation that God has given. We're right in the middle of the first, which is his revelation creation. And we started in verse 18, and we saw something. We saw that, what has humanity done with that? They've suppressed that truth. Secondly, and this is kind of where we, we got through this last time, verse 21 through 22, uh, 23, humanity has distorted that revelation. Suppressed it and distorted it. How have they distorted it? By worshiping the created thing instead of the creator. Another word for that is idolatry. And that is profoundly important because in Paul's thinking, in Paul's argument, this idolatry, this idolatry, about time has two effects. This is this is really an unpopular thing to talk about today, but it's his argument. This idolatry leads to homosexuality, and it leads to a depraved mind. <clears throat> And this depraved mind then leads to the cycle. I'm writing this really quickly so it may not be real clear. The cycle of sin or the downward spiral of sin. So, I mean, again, in, in 118 through 32, this is the argument he's making. What has humanity done with God's revelation as creation? They've suppressed that truth. And secondly, they've distorted that truth. And in distorting that truth, they fall into idolatry, worshiping the created thing instead of the creator, making images of birds and salt that we talked last week. <clears throat> we didn't get into this yet. What we're going to see, uh, actually, I think we did start it last week. What we're seeing is, and this is really hard to talk about this today, but it leads to unnatural sexuality. And that's the term he will use, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But then it also leads, and we're not there yet, but we'll get to that in just a second. It leads to a depraved mind. Sin affects the mind. It affects how we think. And this then leads to this, I'll call it a cycle or a downward spiral of sin, which is what he's going to be talking about in the remaining verses of chapter 1. So this, this section that we're in, is so important in understanding 5,250 years of recorded human history. Because this is what you see. You see this everywhere. Every ancient civilization, every, every ancient historical development, all of the idolatry of the ancient world, and what you're seeing in 2022. As a matter of fact, as I read these verses, which we just started reading last week, I am seeing a description of American civilization. I really am. And this downward spiral, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we'll see in just a minute, is what we're seeing, how, how interconnected everything is. As we reject God's revelation, the downward spiral begins. And so, um, I, I'm not exactly sure where we stop, but let me look at verse 24 again. I know we covered some of this. Therefore, now that therefore is based on what he's talked about in 18 through 23, ending with the exchange of the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, 
because of idolatry, therefore, God gave them up or gave them over to in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because the exchange, there's that word again, the same word we saw in verse 23, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then this mini doxology is blessed forever. Amen. We, I know we covered that last week. But this idolatry leads to what? Impurity, dishonoring of their bodies, and they, because they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's idolatry. So you can see from God's viewpoint in God's economy of things, idolatry is the first major evidence of the distortion of God's revelation. It doesn't lead to atheism. It leads to idolatry, where you worship something else instead of God. The place that God deserves, it substitutes something else for that. And that, in terms of what he's talking about, it's the worship of stones and, and uh, stone uh, uh, idols and wood idols and so on. But he's not done with this. Okay. Does somebody have a question here? I do. This is Woody. I have a question yeah. in, in several places, starting in 24. Therefore, God give them up. That's right. What does that mean that God give them up? He allowed them, or he washed his hands of them, or what? And then it's mentioned um, uh, in 26 also, God gave them up. What does that mean? And it, it's mentioned in 28 as well. It's mentioned in three places. Verse 24, 26, and 28. Well, Woody, uh, that's really, really a good question. I appreciate you asking it. What, what that means is God has built his world in such a way that if you reject his revelation, there are natural consequences to that rejection. And so God gave them up. What that means is God is allowing the natural consequences of that rejection to work themselves out. And the first, the first aspect of that is they exchange the truth about God for a lie, which leads to impurity and dishonoring of their bodies. The second consequence of that rejection is the debased mind. You see that, excuse me, in, in, in verse 26, you see dishonorable passion. And he's going to explain that. And then the third consequence in verse 28 is a debased or a depraved mind. So what, he, what, what that means is God has built his universe, built his world in such a way that there is a moral law. There's an ethical set of standards. If we turn our back on God, then that moral law and those ethical standards go down the tube. And you start to see what he is describing in verse 24, in verse 26, and in verse 28. These are the natural consequences of rejecting God's revelation. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. Okay. Jim, an example of that is the press secretary that the president of the United States appointed, who is a bisexual woman. She handles that position. Yeah, similar to Donald Trump's appointment of the key Department of State, who was a practicing homosexual. And he legitimized homosexuality across the State Department. Both presidents have done that. Most people don't want to believe that about Trump, but he did. He became a major supporter of Donald Trump. That's, now, that's an illustration of a political ramification of that rejection. I think much more importantly than what politicians do is how our society has accommodated to that lifestyle. To where today, to read a verse like verse 24, excuse me, verse 26, is an offense in our culture today. To read that and to say, this is what I believe is happening, you will be charged with hate speech, you will be considered an outlier, and will have virtually no credibility in this culture because of what our culture has done. They've accommodated to this lifestyle in the name of freedom. 
What has happened, it happened in all sexuality issues. It was the key to the abortion debate. It's been the key to so many things. You wrap it around very precious words in American civilization, rights and liberty. They're in our founding documents. And you can- but you wrap them around that and you frame the question in that way, whatever that issue might be, it's very difficult to challenge that. Because personal autonomy is the primary ethical standard of postmodern American civilization. Pursuing autonomy. I'm a law unto myself. And you cannot tell me that anything I'm choosing to do is ethically wrong. The only standard seems to be as long as it doesn't hurt someone. And that has happened historically. And and, and you can cite, because that's your doctorate, is in historical theology, where... Well, I mean, in the ancient world, you would you would choose, of course, ancient Greece, you would choose ancient Rome, where there was a fairly broad acceptance of almost any sexual practice, but also the, the lack of real ethical standards in how you build a civilization. Rome gave us rule of law, but Rome was incredibly inconsistent, hypocritical in, in what it did with that. And I mean, it's just, yeah, those kinds of things you can see all over the place in terms of the ancient world. And in modern civilization, uh, you can look in certain European countries, but you can also look in some of the other civilizations in Africa, Latin America, and so on, where there's a complete abandonment of things that are, are important to the Lord. Secondly, is verse 26, the second illustration of the natural consequence of rejecting God's revelation of idolatry. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to, gave them over to dishonorable passions. For the women, this is really an important word here. For their women, so dishonorable passions is explained now. For their women, exchange, there's that word again. We saw it in verse 23. We saw it in verse 25. Exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now, the key word there in verse 26 and into verse 27 is the word natural. That's the key word. Now, if something is natural and something is unnatural, (laughs) they're opposites. But what's natural? How do you, how do we think about what is natural? There has to be a standard. There has to be some benchmark. Because if you're going to say something is unnatural, you have to have a clear understanding of what's natural. And so what, what is natural? What are the natural relations? If you're going to pose that question, and it is posed here in Scripture, where would you go to get the answer to that? You would go to the creation ordinance of God. You would go to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where God creates the human race. If you look in verse 26 of chapter 1, and it's 27, in the image of God, he created them. In his likeness, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, both male and female bear the image of God. So it's telling us something. God creates the human race in two streams, a male stream, a female stream, male, female. Okay, then in chapter 2, you read that God's design is that this male and female, male and female, he created them are to join together in a one flesh union. That's Genesis 22, 24, and 25. That one flesh union is God's goal. It's God's purpose for creating the human race in two grand streams, different in every chromosome of their body. Physically, they're different. Right brain, left brain, they're different. In every way, they're different. But the goal is that they will come together in a complementary union, in a one flesh union. And you leave Genesis 2, the creation ordinance of God, with a clear understanding that what God's design is, male and female, he created them, that they come together in a one flesh union. It's monogamous, it's heterosexual, and it is ideally to be permanent. That's what's natural. 
because it's rooted in God, the creator. God, God didn't just arbitrarily declare this one day when Paul decides to write the book of Romans. This has been God's pattern throughout all of history. And that's why in the Old Testament, you see the utter and, and horrible consequences when human people choose not to do that. And you can include the kings of Israel. You can include David in this. You can include Solomon in this. When a person does not follow God's creation ordinance, be ready to accept the dire consequences of that. And that's what Paul is saying. God has made his world in such a way that if you reject his revelation, you will see this. People will be doing unnatural things. But you have to understand what the standard of natural is. And I just explained it. How important is man in that heterosexual relationship to establish, provide leadership? And I don't mean dictatorial. I mean leadership in the family. Children pick up on as well. Well, that's, I mean, that's the whole, the other aspect of, of God's creation ordinance is the primary responsibility for leadership is the husband or the father. That's the primary responsibility. And you see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following. We're going to get to that in a couple of months. It's great. We're going to probably be about Christmas. But when we get to Romans 5, you'll see the argument. What does Paul say? By one man sin entered the world. Adam. It's really, it's really fascinating, isn't it? In Romans chapter 5. Eve is not even mentioned. Her name is not even come up in chapter 5. Because what Paul is trying to argue is, where did this all start? How come we're in this terrible situation? Start with Adam. And so the primary responsibility for leadership is with the husband or the father in a family situation. And that leadership is to be a servant leadership, which is also developed in the script. Okay. Now. Continue it. Let me finish this. I didn't quite get, get done with this. Uh, natural relation with women. I'm in the middle of, of verse 27. And we're consumed with passion. Same phrase you see in verse 26. For one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. Receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And so you, you just see a kind of explicit um, summary of homosexual acts. Lesbian, gay, as it's talked about today. Lesbian, women, gay, men, it's talked about today. You see that. And it's God gave them over. This is the natural consequence of rejecting God's revelation. And then he's not done. And, verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, idolatry, that's the root of all this, God gave them up or gave them over. This is a really important statement. To a debased mind, you could translate that to a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done. And then verse 29, I mean, and 30 and 31, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient of parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? So I called this the cycle of sin. I, I should maybe put the downward cycle of sin. You see, what we sometimes do, and Jordan seemed to like to do this, is we stress the sexuality issue in verse 26, but we forget what's in 28. Because what 28 is saying is, you see, the consequence of, of rejecting, <coughs> excuse me, the consequence of rejecting God's revelation is idolatry and the lusts in their hearts of impurity, that internal lust. Then, distorted and perverted sexual relationships, then a depraved mind. And a depraved mind produces all of the vices that are itemized in verse 29, 30, and 31. It's a downward spiral. 
And that's why when I read when I read verse 29, 30, and 31, it's like I'm reading a description of American civilization in 2022. I mean, it, it's 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 this this depraved mind which enables humanity to justify and to approve of this stuff. That's what he says in verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So there is this innate, well, he's going to talk more about the innate sense of this in chapter 2, but there's, innate, there's this innate sense that this is wrong, but they not only keep doing it, they give approval to those who are doing it. They're applauding and, 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 and approving of and sanctioning that which is sinful. This downward spiral is given the stamp of approval in the United States of America 2022 in the name of rights and liberty. I have the right to live my life the way I want to live my life, and you can't tell me it's wrong for me to choose to do this. And that has been the genius of the satanic deception in American civilization in the 20th century and now into the 21st century. Sanctioning depravity in the name of rights and liberty. And that we are struggling with how to answer that in American civilization. Because if you have no absolute standard, you have no standard by which to hold people accountable. And if you can't hold people accountable, then what people choose to do, it's the, it's the little refrain in the book of Judges that's relevant for 2022. Every person is doing what is right in their own eyes. And this downward spiral, which is what 24 through 32 describes, this downward spiral is destructive. A civilization cannot endure with this downward spiral. It's got to be stopped. It's got to be reversed. This is something sorry, go ahead. that they've done on their own. Uh, it's not done as part of the wrath of God. It's just how the people have rejected, you know, God, and and uh, and and that's how it's going to turn out, right? Yes, I, I think I'm understanding everything you were saying there, Woody. But yes, I mean. Uh, there is the natural consequences of rejecting God work themselves out in individual lives, and we kind of see that all over our, our, our place, but also in, in organized civilization. And, and that's tragically. We've always seen these things in individual lives. That's human history. But what, what is important is that and gave approval to those who practice them, that's where we are in America right now because we're giving approval to so much of this in the name of rights and liberties. That, that's, that's what is, is very, very difficult in our country because in the name of rights and liberties, we're sanctioning this as a matter of individual liberty. And that is a distortion of, of what that means, I think. But it's also catastrophic, and it's ultimately self-destructive. I'm not a doom and gloom person, because I think God can turn this around with a revival, as he's done four times in our history. But this, this is very serious stuff here. And you can look at organized civilization in the past, and what naturally happens over time. And if the United States of America thinks that it alone will be the exception to this rule, we are delusional. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to happen. This is the way God made his world. And the natural consequence of rejecting his revelation, I should make that plural, revelations, is built into his world. And he just says, okay, if you choose to do this, this is what you're going to see over time. And this is what we are seeing in our country right now. And it's very, very difficult to stop it because the fundamental issue is a spiritual issue. We're not going to solve this by throwing money at it, which is what governments usually try to do. Solve a problem by throwing lots of money at it. That's, that can help a little, but it doesn't solve the problem. 
It's a fundamental problem in American civilization, not political, economic, social, or financial. It's spiritual. And unless we face up to that, uh, it doesn't matter what's going to happen. I mean, you can slow it down. You, you can slow it down a little bit, but you ultimately, you're not going to stop it. This downward spiral is fatal individually. You, know, you see that, of course, in, in much of history, but also in terms of the civilization. I know it is because it encourages you. The only answer is the gospel. That's the answer. And if you put to Christ, you know the answer. Now start sharing it. Now, so, I mean, listen, I, I don't want to belabor all of this, but it's it, this, this section one through uh, one eighteen through 32 is, is a very important section to Paul's argument because what he has shown is, this is why you need the righteousness of God. God has to remake us. And how does he remake us? By sending his son, his death, burial, and resurrection is, is what the price that's paid for this, and we appropriate that by faith. That's the solution. <laughs> so, uh, All right, everybody online with me? Yeah, I got a question, Jim. Yes, so, please. At the very end of 32, right? How, yes. As believers... I'm assuming everyone on the call in there are, 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 are saved. Um, that last clause, right? They do not do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So if we are passive, as this saying, if we are passive in allowing homosexuality, allowing um, abortion, allowing um, all the different things that are listed above here, are we, is this a call to intervene? Well, Glenn, I, I'm not sure what you mean by intervene. Well, if you mean to organize a revolution over to the government, I don't think that's what the scriptures are saying. But I do think it, and, and that's, I, that's a great question. I mean, it really is. I do think it means, Glenn, that you and I and, and everyone else who names the name of Christ should be activists in, first of all, our own personal pursuit of holiness in our lives, that we are representing what the transformation of Christ can bring, because we that's part of being salt and light. I think it also means that we want to be activists in sharing and proclaiming and supporting ministries that are involved in the gospel at all levels of society. And then thirdly, because we live in a democratic republic, which is what the United States is, we have the right and responsibility to choose political leaders who make our laws and our ordinances at the local level, state level, national level, who are making laws and, and, and passing ordinances that are in conformity with God's revelation. Um, and and that, that, that's a challenge, and it's more and more of a challenge, because in a democratic republic, the majority is what is needed to get elected. And if the majority of people are unbelievers and are committed to this individual rights and liberties and personal autonomy, they will be choosing individuals who are representing that pursuit of personal autonomy, not a righteousness that's in conformity with Scripture. And that's the greatest challenge we have right now, because the vast majority of people, and maybe I shouldn't say vast, but Overall, the whole nation, the majority of people who are voting today are not voting for personal righteousness. They're voting for lots of other things that inform their own personal standards and so on. And this are the founders of this nation. I've recommended a book, and I'll recommend it again by an historian named McKenzie. It's called We the Fallen People. Of course, he's playing off the first phrase that's in the United States Constitution. But what Dr. McKenzie is doing is he's showing that the founders of this nation understood something. Human beings are not innately good. The word they used in the 1700s, the 18th century, was humans are not innately virtuous. That's the word they like to use. So if they're not innately virtuous, then how do you set up a democratic republic which is going to serve the citizens who are not innately virtuous. They're not really good. You build a system where there are constant checks on power, 
and Compton's text on a tyranny of the majority who may be making and promoting legislation that is not in connection with what is good for a democratic republic. That, that, was, ab- that was absolutely the consuming fear of James Madison, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Jay, the key leaders who put these documents and structures together. They were absolutely terrified by the tyranny of a majority of people who are not virtuous. And people are not innately virtuous. And so what Dr. McKenzie does is he shows how elaborate they were in building a system where these constant checks and balances to make sure that you're always going to have a check on on non-virtuous, unrighteous behavior among citizens. They feared the majority. Okay. When it becomes unvirtuous, but, but as individuals, um, if we don't do anything to intervene, we may not approve of what they're doing. But if we do nothing, isn't that in its own way condoning what they're doing? <laughs> well, you're going to have to wrestle through that on your own, I think, Glenn, because when you when you ask that question as a Christian, and that is a very important question to ask, what does that mean? Are there limits to what you can do? I mean, obviously, the, the important thing, I already talked about several of those important things that we should do or should be doing or should be involved in doing. But, you know, you're going to have to, what are the limits to that? Am I willing to engage in civil disobedience? Right. You know, you, you, you have a law that you're supposed to follow, you choose not to follow it. Civil disobedience means you choose not to follow, but you're willing to accept the consequences of not following, which means you'll probably go to jail or whatever the, the consequences might be. So these are the struggles that Christians have had throughout all of history. When I live in an unrighteous society, what do I do? And the main reason the Puritans came to America in 1629, led by John Winthrop, was they no longer could believe that they could live righteously in England, which had a state church of Anglicanism, which was very close to Catholicism at that time. And they said, we can't live there. So we're going to leave and go to North America. And from 1629 to 1630, 35,000 Puritans came to the New World, found the Massachusetts Bay Colony and all that. And they set up God's kingdom on earth. That's what they said they were doing. For God's laws will be along the laws of men. And, of course, over time, you know what happened. It worked for a while, but then over time it, it started to fall apart. So, I mean, you're asking a question that Christians have asked for 2,000 years. What do I do when my society is unrighteous? What I want to do is I want to go up on a hill, sell all my possessions, just wait for Jesus to that's what I want to do. But you can't, that's not realistic, and that's not biblical. I'm to be the salt and light. I'm to be an ambassador for Christ. Right. So it's, it's, it's weird. How do, you, how do you view that? And throughout history, Glenn, Christians have chosen very different options on how far do I push that to deal with the unrighteous. Don't you think, though, that just a minimum, it says they give their approval to those? Just don't give your approval. Don't go up and support and get in people's right. faces that don't support. Yeah. Which a lot of Christians are doing. Yes. They're minimally. Just by their actions. I mean, you and how do how, space, just, you don't have to support it. Yes. And how do I represent Christ? How do I show Christ's love and grace to the LGBTQIA community? They all have very important meanings in this culture today. And how do, do I have the obligation to represent Christ to them? How do I do that when you are the enemy? Because in the LGBTQIA community, you and I as evangelical Christians are about this close to Nazis. I mean, we are the enemy. I mean, I have been in conversations over my, uh, over my life, many, almost always gay men, but many people who have chosen that lifestyle. And the most important thing I have found is communicate to them that you care about them. You may think I'm your enemy, but you're not my enemy. I mean, it's just, it's so important. How do I do that? And Glenn, that's a part of the answer to your question, too. 
And, and you, you go back, and this is, I, I've often encouraged people to do this too. You go back and look, how did the early church, because the early church was in the midst of the same cesspool you and I are in the midst of. I mean, you know, Corinth, Paul wrote two letters to Corinth. Corinth was like America. I mean, wrote, the Corinthian civilization was like America. And so how did, what did Paul tell the Corinthian church to do? Shoot all people who violate verse 26. Is that what he says? Your Second Amendment right is to shoot them. I'm I'm being very volatile there. That's not what he says. He says, and it's like, you stand for the truth. You represent something that's holy and righteous, but you are representing Christ in a world that looks at everything you stand for as offensive. The offense of the cross. And so you have to show, you have to show love, you have to show compassion, as well as standing for that. Is that an easy thing to do? Jesus says in John 17, as I am in the world, but not of the world, you are in the world. I'm sending you into the world, but you're not going to be of the world. And I've studied that for 30 some years. My ethics book, chapter three, is on what does that mean for the Christian today? Be in the world, but not of the world. If you don't start feeling a little tension there of what that means, you're not thinking. That's an extremely difficult thing to try to do. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. So what does that mean? And what's, how do you resolve that tension? All right, can we leave chapter one? Yes, please. All right, let's go to chapter two. Woody says it's okay. Uh, yeah, for some reason, Woody isn't. All the others are real, what is this in real loud? I don't know what to do. So I pull it up to my ear. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, deals with the issue of conscience. Deals with the issue of the human heart. So Paul must do something here. We see God's clear judgment on idolatry, the rejection of God's revelation in creation. That rejection leads to the suppressing of the truth and the distorting of the truth into idolatry. But now he has to do something else. Is the human being innately understanding good versus bad? Righteousness versus evil. Or is that an arbitrary standard that God sets? Does a human being innately, are they born with a sense of right and wrong? And of course, as some of you are already saying, the answer to that question is yes, they are born with that. So what do they do with that? So if you're following the outline, which is in your note, I want to do, there are four points here. Human judgment is self-condemnatory. God's judgment is always according to truth. God's judgment is according to human actions. And God's judgment is according to obedience. So let's work our way through this. Oh, my goodness. We're not going to get very far. All right. Now, therefore, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh, man, every one of you who judges. So he's repeating what he repeated earlier in chapter 1, therefore they are without excuse. <coughs> and now he wants to say, you're also without excuse in another category. Human judgment. Human evaluation of other people's actions is condemnatory. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. That's a curious way to start the second part of his argument. But what he wants to do is he wants to now focus on the internal, what's going on inside a person's heart. And he's going to use a word, he's going to use the word conscience. Conscience. 
going to use the word heart and conscience. We'll talk about the difference when we get to it, which we probably won't get to today. So what is he saying here? He's saying that, okay, you, all human beings, are without excuse when they try to sit in judgment of the actions and activities and thoughts of other human beings. Why? Because you're a hypocrite. You do the very things that you're condemning someone for. Which is rather piercing, penetrating, convicting, hurtful, unexpected. Well, I certainly can hold others accountable. I can judge other people's actions. He's not saying we shouldn't do that, but he's saying there's something really important about this. No matter how you set yourself up, you're guilty of the very same things you're accusing people of. In your thoughts, in your desires, in your actions. Now he's got to explain this. We know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. That's the way God is. God's a God of truth. God is not a hypocrite. God is not inconsistent. He's perfect in all his attributes. And we know something. Chapter 1, 18 through 32, God is the creator. And God sets the ethical standards by which his creation is supposed to live their lives. So when God makes a judgment, it's perfect. So you have, verse 1, human beings, inconsistent, hypocritical. They can't really make sound ethical judgments because they are guilty of the very things that are holding people down. But not God. God's not like that. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge, or rather you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Contrast between verse 1, humanity, verse 2, God, verse 3, do you really think God's not going to hold you accountable for the very things you're accusing other people of? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's judgment is meant to lead you to repentance. You escape the judgment of God. No, I will not escape. Well, why doesn't God judge me right now? <clears throat> if I'm accountable... <clears throat> If I'm accountable to God, and I know that intuitively, then why doesn't God judge me right now? If he is that kind of God who judges perfectly, his justice is held in absolute perfection, then why doesn't he judge me right now? Or Paul says, or do you presume? You're being presumptuous. And your presumptuous is what you know about God, his kindness, his forbearance, his patience. That's the kind of God I know. He's not going to judge me. He's not going to judge me right now. He's going to give me a lot of time. Wonderful attributes of God, his kindness, his forbearance, his patience. You don't realize something, Paul says. You don't realize that his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience is to lead you to repentance. He delays judgment so that you will repent. That's the kind of God he is. The certainty of judgment. And I'm accountable to him. Why doesn't he judge me right now? Because I know God. He's kind. He's forbearing. He's patient. And Paul says, but don't you really understand that his patience, his kindness, and his forbearance is his grace? 
to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't be presumptuous that his patience, his kindness, and his forbearance means he's never going to hold you accountable. And then he uses a phrase which is a little bit disturbing and unsettling. He's storing up his wrath. There's a real unpopular thing to talk about in 2022, that God is storing up his wrath. Kindness, his forbearance, his patience, his allegiance to repentance. Faith in his son. But there's coming a day when his wrath will be revealed and he's storing it up. And that's for the unrepentant. That's for the unrepentant. All right, are you with this? Is, like Fred said, you know, I have 10 more minutes of more doom and gloom stuff. Okay, it's going to dishearten you and you're going to leave here depressed. Don't, don't. If you put your faith in Christ, this no longer applies to you. What Paul is trying to show is the universal condemnation of all humanity. He's doing a pretty good job, isn't he? Now, he has to explain what storing up means. Verse 6. He, now in my Bible, what I did is I circled storing up in verse 5. And I circled he will render, beginning of verse 6, and drew a line between. He will render to each one according to his words. <clears throat> To those who by patience in well-doing seek glory for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, do not obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and patience for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Jesus says you will know them by your works. There are two divisions of humanity. Not three, not four, but two. Those who are destined for eternal life, those who are destined for the wrath and fury of God. For those in tribulation and distress, for a human being who does evil, for those who do good, is eternal life. God shows no partiality. Now, at this point, Paul is not bringing up faith in Jesus Christ, justification. He's mentioned it. All he's saying is God will hold you accountable for how you have responded to his revelation. And if you have rejected his creation, his, his revelation, his creation, 1, 18 through 32, we saw the downward spiral. We saw all of the evidence of your rejection of his truth. Paul's saying the same thing here. The innate sense of right and wrong will be evidenced in how you live your life. Do you suppress that, or do you respond to it? What does he say up in verse 5? Your hard and impenitent heart. Those who rejected God's revelation in conscience in the human heart, their hearts, their hearts are hardened, they're impenitent. 
So let's just talk a little bit about this in the, in the remaining minutes. I want to make sure this is clearly what he's doing in these first uh, 11 verses here. And you can't divorce it from everything else he's been saying. You have an innate sense of what is right and wrong. Look at a little child. You know, I'm watching my grandson. He's now almost three weeks old. But I have another grandson who's seven, another grandson who's three. And I watch those little older boys. It's really fat when they're really young. They just, they have a real sense of what is right and wrong. They really do. George, I don't want you to get up on the ladder and get that cookie on the top shelf of mommy's cupboard. George hears that. He processes it. He understands it. And mommy goes to work. The nanny comes. She's up on the second floor working with Tommy, who's three. And George is downstairs. And he gets the little ladder. Gets up on the ladder. Reaches, gets a cookie. Nobody sees it. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. But boy, that sure does taste good. And then the next day, the same thing happens. He doesn't feel quite as guilty or sensitive as he did the first day. Nobody knows it. Oh, that tasted so good. Then another day, he can't do it. The nanny's there. And then the fourth day, Irene's home. She's home every Thursday and Friday. Can't do it. Then Monday, he starts to think. And he does it again. And he does it five times. He no longer feels any guilt. No longer feels... What's happening? In the words of this verse, my grandson's heart has become hardened. What had been an innate sense of right and wrong and wanting to obey mommy no longer applied. Heart becomes hard. Now I'm saying that about my grandson. That's exactly what happens to human beings. The first time you do something, you feel a bit guilty. You feel sensitized to it. I shouldn't have done that. But boy, that sure tasted good. Whatever you want to substitute, whatever it is. See, what Paul is saying is the rejection of humanity, of the innate sense of right and wrong, is manifested by the hardness of the human heart. And over time, it becomes harder and harder. And you rationalize everything you do. And God's not impartial. You either manifest his righteousness based on his moral law revealed in your heart and conscience, or you reject that moral law manifested in your heart and conscience. Now, now he must show something here. I understand the Jew has a moral law, Ten Commandments, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. But the Gentile doesn't have that. The non-Jew doesn't have that. If God shows no partiality, verse 11, isn't he partial in how he deals with the Jews and the Gentiles? Verse 12, I'm not going to get all this done, but I'm going to start it. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law to very important phrases written on their hearts. 
while their conscience bears witness. Do you see that word witness? You underline that. The word witness is a term of revelation. God's revealed something there. The work of the law. The work of the law, what's that? The difference is right and wrong. Innately, we have a sense we shouldn't murder somebody. Innately, we have the sense we shouldn't lie. Innately, we have the sense that we should we should honor our parents. Innately, we have the sense that, that we are we are to not be covetousness and, and emotionally coveting what doesn't belong to me. You go on and on through the Ten Commandments. You have an innate sense written on your heart. You're born with it. And your conscience bears witness. My, my daughter used to like to watch Pinocchio. Do you remember the Disney Pinocchio? Remember Jiminy Cricket? Or remember those old cartoons that when I was a little boy, the cartoons, you, you have a figure, and there's one little cloud here of an angel with a telling you what is right to do, and then the other cloud is a devil with a pitchfork telling you, remember that? And they're always in conflict. That's not exactly the idea here. But in a sense, it is. Written on your heart, the center of the human will, the center of what it means to be a human, written on your heart is what? The moral law of God. It's a witness. Witness is a word of revelation. It's a witness. And your conscience. The conscience is like a thermometer in our lives. The conscience, as it's informed by lots and lots of experience, lots of, it's, it's, to, it's to be our guide. But if the heart is hard, will conscience reflect the hard heart that's mentioned up in verse 4? Yes. And so the human heart in which the moral law of God is written is going to be reflected in conscience. Because the Bible speaks about five different times of the hardness of the human conscience. Where it's no longer a reliable guide. It's no longer a dependable guide. So Gentiles who do not have the moral law of God are accountable for the moral law written on their hearts, reflected in their conscience. So are Gentiles answerable to God for his moral law? Please say yes. Yes. So human beings have rejected, have suppressed the truth of the moral law of God written on their hearts, manifested by their conscience, and allowed it to be hardened. So it's no longer a reliable guide in moral, ethical decision-making. And a hardened heart can rationalize anything. Got to quit. You don't have any questions, do you? Are you with me? I mean, really, are you with Paul? I mean, it's, yes. this is, it's a fantastic argument that he's laying out for us. The culpability of all human beings when they stand before God. And that's why he's working his way. The, the, only, the only solution to this is Jesus. There's no other solution to all this. And that's where he's working his way toward that, chapter 3. This is heavy stuff, but it's good stuff. It's really important stuff. I'm not sure I want to call it stuff, but it's it's really important. All right? I'm going to pray and let you go. Please don't be depressed. Be encouraged. The gospel is the answer to this. Father, it is. Uh, it's very important. This is a major, major part of your word. The book of Romans, we do not take it lightly. We want to carefully, actually methodically, work our way through it. Because it really does help us to understand why we need Jesus. His death, burial, resurrection paid the price for all this, made it possible for us to be righteous and to have a relationship with you. You solved our problem. This universal condemnation of all humanity, that problem is solved by Jesus. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his inestimable work on the cross. 
his shed blood, which paid the price, and his resurrection, which proved you accepted that price, brought him back to life. He's now alive and enthroned at the right hand, the Lord and master of this universe. We're looking forward to his return when he will make all things right. Until then, help us to be faithful, loyal ambassadors of you, reaching out to people in our lives and how we live, and we have opportunities, those divine appointments, to speak to people about Christ, where we represent you. We have the answer. We have the, the we solved, you have solved our dilemma. You've ended that downward spiral in our lives. You've softened our hard hearts. You've made it possible for us to have an intimate, vital, robust relationship with you. And we will eternally thank you for that great, great truth and that great certainty. Be with these men, both those online and here in the room. As we are dispersed, we do so with your blessing. We pray that we may represent you well in Christ's name.